This episode of Tinfoil Swans is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Food & Wine's Tinfoil Swans, a weekly podcast serving up inspiring, touching, hilarious, revealing conversations with some of the biggest names in the food and beverage world, and we hope giving you plenty to savor even after the episode is over. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Executive Features Editor at Food & Wine, and I am eternally fascinated by how successful creative people become, well, themselves. What are the moments? influences, missteps, pep talks, and decisions, big and small, that got them where they are today. This week, I got to catch up with my friend, Anthony Porosky. You may know him as the food and drinks expert on Queer Eye, now in its seventh heartwarming and ugly cry-inducing season. Maybe you've had the pleasure of seeing him on stage on tour for his cookbooks, Anthony in the Kitchen or Let's Do Dinner, or hosting his highly entertaining, and I'm not just saying that, because he let me come on as a guest judge, Netflix competition show Easy Bake Battle. Maybe you thirst follow his Instagram? It's, it's cool, he knows. But before all of that, Anthony was a multilingual, multicultural kid living in Canada in awe of Martha Stewart, who he now hangs out with, dreaming of a life on the stage and screen, overanalyzing every bite of food that crossed his plate and every decision in front of him. Welcome to season one, episode three of Tinfoil Swans, Anthony Porosky and the Dream of Chickens. Hi, my friend. (laughs) I am so happy that you have come to join us today on Tinfoil Swans. Hi, Kat. It is a delight to see your face. And I have banked the new season of Queer Eye to binge over the weekend. I keep hearing people say that it is the best one yet. Wow. Which has got to feel, which that's got to feel great, right? That's high praise. I'll take it. And the funny thing is, I've known you since before this started, but what we want to start out with is what I ask every guest at the beginning, because it goes way back before I knew you at all. Anthony, who were you when you were 10 years old? Okay, so I was 10 years old. I was a very picky eater. I did not like fresh tomatoes. (laughs) Mater hater. I was a mater hater. I only liked them cooked or in a stew or a sauce. And I was going to St. Lawrence Elementary School and I was swimming several days a week for Samac, which was this like swim club. And in the winter, we would have to sell Florida citrus to pay for like to travel to go for our swim meets. So we had these beautiful ruby red grapefruits and full disclosure, my dad would just sell them. He's a physician and he worked at a hospital. So he would just sell them to all the other physicians. I did nothing. I went to Catholic school and I was in Girl Scouts. I was made to go door to door because my dad was like, I'm not putting that on my colleagues. But (laughs) all the people who are the super top sellers, you know, their parents just took care of it. I would have much preferred quote unquote selling slash consuming cookies than grapefruits. But the grapefruits were delicious. They were very good. My dad would cut one for me every Saturday before Polish school. And he would make the little incisions so that I wouldn't eat any pith. And he would put just a tiny little bit of sugar on there. And that was like part of my morning breakfast. Okay. So actually, let's go to that. You were going to Polish school. So at home, are you speaking Polish and English? Where were you living? In Canada, in a suburb of Montreal called Brassard or if you're French-Canadian, Brassau. Ooh, 
which was basically right off the island. It was like the first exit when you took Champlain Bridge in the R sector because all the streets are divided into like street names. I would say, especially when I was even younger than that, when I was like a little kid, we only spoke Polish exclusively. And then I started to learn French at school and English I kind of learned from my sisters and from Sesame Street and just being out and about. So English kind of like infiltrated and started to take over the Polish a little. So literally I would like have sentences in three different languages at first. So it's kind of all over the place a little. I'm sure that made you fit really well at school. Yeah. Well, in Montreal it did because it was like all their parents emigrated from somewhere. So it wasn't out of the norm. My friend Andrew Shahidi, his mom was Portuguese. His father was Iranian. Nicola Paperno, his mom was Greek. His dad was Italian. So it was like very normal to have all these different ethnicities all over the place. That's really, really lovely that you were able to find that rhythm. And imagine everybody's picking up each other's speech and picking up words from other cultures that they're not from. And that's kind of... Totally. And all the weird, awesome foods that you would see at lunch and different things you would get to experience because they were very strict. No junk food, no potato chips, no chocolates, no candy, no soda, anything like that. So kids brought like real food to school, which was so cool. So when you're 10 and you're looking out, we, we our world is tiny when, when we're 10 and we're looking out at the bits of the rest of it that creep into it. Where did you maybe see where you wanted to be in it? Was food appealing to you? Was being on screen appealing to you? What did you want? So I always wanted to be an actor. I always wanted to be in movies. I think I wanted to be in movies because I loved movies so much. And with food, I mean, I wasn't thinking necessarily about like what a career. I think I was just very focused on being a kid <laughs> and seeing what I could get away with. <laughs> but I will say that even though as like a picky eater, I was definitely very obsessed with food. That was, I would say like 90% of the conversations that went around at our table whenever we'd be enjoying a meal together. It was always like, oh, we went to this restaurant and we had lobster prepared this way. Like, wouldn't it be nice if we grilled it instead? Wouldn't it dry out? Oh no, you would have to add more like garlic butter. And, and so I heard my parents would talk about these things. They traveled a lot and they went to all, all kinds of really interesting places. So when they come back from Morocco and suddenly we were eating tagine for a while or when my mother would go to Poland to visit her mother at the time while she was still alive, she would come back with all of these like crazy little yogurts. Ooh. They're like a hybrid between yogurt and a farmer's cheese. So they were really dense and they were really well flavored. And then she would bring back Ostipek, which was like this smoked kind of like a mozzarella type cheese that you heat up on a pan and then it melts and then you serve it with lingonberries and some like toast squares or melbas or something. Yeah, so food was definitely central, but it was never anything that I thought I would pursue professionally. Literally until Queer Eye kind of came about. Or actually, maybe I, I you know what, that's a lie because I dabbled in it when I met you when you were at a tasting table and I did my first ever food demo on, on camera, which I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Which we will be linking to in the show notes. Mmm, great. It's so charming. And the dish you made is fantastic on that. Aww. At this point, are you mostly eating at home? Or are you going to restaurants? I would say 90% of meals were at home. Mm -hmm. And then the trips that we would take, like an overseas trip a year, they had one Caribbean trip a year, which then they would come back from that trip and we would basically have, it was all based on Great Chefs of the World. It was a show on Discovery. Yes! It was my favorite show because it, it aired right before Oprah when I would come back home from school. And so my mother would get inspired by recipes from there. They, we went through a phase where like every single week we would have 
some kind of a white fish or salmon that was like a baked situation. She wrapped it in mango and then would put a slice of brie on top of that with like a papaya, black bean, red pepper, mango salsa situation. So we would eat like a lot of Caribbean food in the winter because they would typically would go during the winter. Yeah. And then we had a Caribbean trip with the family where we'd go to some kind of an all-inclusive situation. Everything was kind of inspired by their travels, I would say. And a lot of like hearty Polish food and like incredible soups during the winter. The restaurant ritual. Okay. So going to Red Lobster was a big deal because we were all seafood nuts. And when Red Lobster came to the South Shore, yes, those biscuits and that treasure chest where you could pick out these like little alien finger toys or like weird necklaces. And I was always like, why would anybody pick a necklace? Like, why wouldn't you want to collect all of the little alien finger toys? With the like little rubbery arms? Yeah, exactly. And they would like wiggle. Yes. Yeah. So Red Lobster was a big deal. We would go there a couple of days a year. And then there was a chain called Casa Grec, which was Greek food. It was bring your own wine. And they had a lobster festival every summer. And we would have two lobsters each because they were like $10, which is like a steal for a lobster. And so we would go have that every summer. We would go at least once a week. It was like mandated, the whole family. You know, people rag on chain restaurants and yes, there are issues, but it can really speak to where you're from and to these communal experiences. And I mean, I travel a lot of places and I'm sure you do too, where it's only chain restaurants really. Totally. And it's still people who are employed there and it's still these very specific memories. And it just sort of irks me when people sort of auto bag on these places that, I don't know, growing up, we didn't go out to eat a whole lot. And if we'd gone to Red Lobster, I would have thought that was so incredibly fancy. It was so fancy. It was like the most special place in the world. It literally had lobster in the name. I remember a friend of mine wrote this incredible essay and saying how she felt like a little queen. She had won the spelling bee and her family went there. And you get the drawn butter and the tiny fork. Oh, yeah. The little fork was so fancy. You need those to get the meat out of the, the smaller arms and not the claws because that's what we prized. Because that meat was so delicate and tender. We weren't allowed to waste a single bit of lobster meat. No, no, no. No. Again, I grew up Catholic and the nuns would... <laughs> Like disembowel me if I wasted a morsel. So with fancy, did you like fancy things? Was that part of your cosmos or did you just like interesting things? I definitely had a taste for caviar from a very young age. <laughs> so my parents would bring it back from Poland and it was Russian at the time and that was a thing. And so I definitely loved that from a very early age. I loved all shellfish, all seafood cheeses I definitely was introduced to at a pretty young age because on Friday nights we had this ritual when we would watch TGIF and then Dateline and then 2020 with Barbara Walters and Hugh Downs. Oh, yes. And we would have this like crazy cheese platter situation and they were like 90% of them were unpasteurized because the laws are different in Canada than they were in the US. So we would, I had a poisson was like a normal thing from a young age. And for anybody who doesn't know, it smells like a kid's hockey bag after like a month of not cleaning it. That's literally it. And it was prized and we loved it. A friend of mine has a restaurant where he serves epoisicles. So he dips the spoon in there and hands you the spoon. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so you're, you're having these experiences and you're watching Great Chefs. It's amazing how many of the people who I've spoken with for this podcast talk about watching chefs on on TV or watching Jacques and Julia and all these people. And that was how they learned to cook. Who was that for you? Did you have that? Jacques and Julia, 100%. Martha Stewart was very big in our home as well. My middle sister was particularly obsessed and had a subscription. We made, we, my sister made sushi for all of us the first time. 
that I ever had it not in a restaurant because of Martha Stewart Living magazine, because there was an issue dedicated to that. And then I remember how excited I was when I learned that she was Polish, because she would have her mom, Paniko up come and show her how to make cabbage rolls and they would do pierogies. And I thought it was so interesting that she would add apples to the cabbage rolls for like sweetness because we didn't have that. So yeah, we watched a lot of that. My mother loved those shows as well. And she kind of ran the house. We weren't really allowed to watch anything that we wanted except for Saturday morning cartoons. So it was a lot of Oprah and a lot of cooking shows, but particularly I would say Great Chefs was really, that for me was like quintessential youth because there were great chefs of America, great chefs of the Caribbean, great chefs of the world. These were chefs de cuisine. There was no charisma. There was no charm. They were literally <laughs> in their stainless steel kitchens with their white hats and their chef coats. And they were just like mumbling away, kind of like doing their thing. It was so exciting. It was like an opportunity to travel in your own living room and, and see what these, what these people were making. And then very often my mother would actually go and recreate a lot of these dishes and kind of like put little spins and twists on them. So picture in your head, little 10-year-old you, and tell that child that that child will get to speak to Martha Stewart. How's that conversation going? It's so strange. It's just really weird. <laughs> I think the past six years has just been filled with these like, these moments where I'm experiencing things. And especially when you meet somebody like her. It's so loaded because without knowing it, she was part of my upbringing because we would watch her and we had her books and her magazines. And then when you meet the person, it's kind of like you have a moment and you're like, oh, you're actually a human being. And so I try to lean into that. But every once in a while, I like my body, I have this like moment where I feel like my soul is like escaping my body. And then it's just like, you're like right back into it. And, you know, it's very surreal. Even now, what we've been doing this for six, seven years. And I still kind of have these like ah moments of like, that's just, that's bonkers. So it's been an interesting thing because I, I knew you before this and I know you now. And people have that reaction to you where there is a public avatar of you. You're still a very real human person, but I'm always so curious about what that feels like on your side, on the side of anybody who's famous enough to be a character in somebody's head and having to balance that with the reality of your own emotions and everyday being. Okay, so it really depends on which day you get me. If I have a day where I'm, you know, I woke up on the right side of the bed, I had a workout, I meditated, I got to play with my dog and I'm able to be present and I just feel grounded and like myself then I can behave normally, but I'm quite aloof. And so I even have moments where sometimes I kind of forget. It's interesting because I go to the to the park with Neon, my, my rescue and my fiance, Kev. It's like our ritual at the end of the day, whether he's working from home or at the office, or if I just came back from traveling and it's something we really enjoy doing. And one day we'll go and there's just like not a single person stops us. I feel like a completely normal person and then for some reason, I call it electricity. Often it's like when a new season of Queer Eye comes out and then suddenly I'll get stopped so many times. Like you'll have people who will come and then they'll be a little shocked. It's like, okay, I have to leave this conversation. Hi, how are you? What's your name? You try to have like a little moment. And then other times they'll be across the street and just like screaming my name. And Kev, my fiance is always like, I could have sworn that person knew you. I didn't realize how much I valued anonymity until it was taken away from me. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you and I had recorded another podcast before the pandemic, and we were sort of double dog daring each other to go out to lunch solo without the phone. And because that's a protective device, you can go and look at your phone and be in that world, and it's almost like a little safety blanket. And it's hard to be naked out there to the world. But then we couldn't go out to eat for a long time. Did those muscles atrophy at all for you? Definitely. Because of the pandemic, I was in Austin for a significant portion of it because we were filming Queer Eye there. And so... You stayed. I stayed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, New York was the literal epicenter and it just didn't feel right coming back. And, and we came back right after George Floyd was killed. Mm, yes. We did the drive back with my dog. I think it's something that I'm still trying to adjust to. I've definitely become a lot more of a homebody in some ways for better and in other ways for worse. I've been kind of like neglecting my extroverted side. It's getting better and better, but this is something that I bring up therapy a lot, but you already know this about me, that I've been bringing up with my therapist. And it's like, I actually have to put on my calendar now, even if it's like getting toilet paper, paper towel, or days where I'm like working a lot from home and I'm on a lot of Zooms or whatever it is. And I really, really appreciate that you talk so publicly about mental health and, and therapy, because along with my whole host of other things, the leaving the house thing can be so hard. I get sort of almost situational agoraphobia, or sometimes it just descends upon me. And just getting out that front door can be a really incredibly difficult thing. You know, for, for folks listening to this who don't go to therapy. Go. <laughs> I swear I will help you find a therapist, low or no cost. I'm really good at this. I love to help people find therapists and stuff. It saved my life, literally, mm -hmm. like Same. several times in my life. <laughs> Shout out to Terry, my therapist. Shout out to Carol. So I want to get to a little bit later in your life, maybe your early 20s or so, because I feel like that's a period when a lot of people are figuring things out at that point, do you know you want to be an actor like that and that you're really doing it? Not like just childhood dream of, hey, I'd like to be on the screen, but actively pursuing it. Definitely taking it more seriously at this point. So in my early 20s, I was in like college and university at Marianopolis and then at Concordia and studying psychology. The pure sciences just weren't for me, even though we have a lot of physicians in the family. And so I felt like that was kind of a happy medium, all the while knowing that I still wanted to be an actor. So I was taking acting classes at night with friends of mine. I was slowly but surely making a plan to go to New York. And I didn't quite know how it was going to go down yet, but I was figuring it out. A lot of just so much angst. The amount of <laughs> journaling that I did. Do you still have those? Oh, of course. When I'm feeling a little sad is usually when I go to the journals and I am quickly reminded like, oh, you were actually a lot more sad in your 20s <laughs> than, than you are for whatever the, the thing that's bothering you today is. I definitely still wanted to be an actor, but I was, I kind of had these like two sides to me and I'm a, I was a big compartmentalizer. And so there was a part of me that was like, okay, play the university student, go to the study groups, have that whole experience with the backpack. And then there was the side of me that wanted to basically be Jack Kerouac and like the extra member of like the Libertines or the Strokes and trying to like live that like rocker life. So how were these at war with each other, these sides? I think so. I wanted so badly to kind of conform because everyone in my life was making plans for their masters. And that was something that, well, I didn't have the grades for, but I also didn't have the excitement or the ambition for as well. And I'm, I'm so glad that didn't happen. Because it's just, it wasn't the path for me. You know, I remember I took a Greyhound to New York and I went to the new school because they had an open house for their, I believe it was an MFA actors program that I wanted to go consider doing. And I, I actually went to Pastis 
the old location and had dinner by myself at the bar where I had a liter of red wine and a niçoise. And I wanted to say escargot, but I don't know if they had escargot on the menu. I've always loved escargot. And then I would, you know, went to New York to try to figure out how I can be an artist. And so it was kind of like these two things going on simultaneously. So I was definitely in conflict with myself. I think I still am. I think that's how we just keep on moving forward. Because if we're like done and dusted at whatever age we happen to be, then what more do you do? Totally. I mean, I got to think we're all works in progress. We'll be back with more from Anthony after the break. This episode of Tinfoil Swans from Food & Wine is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced sweet bees honey barbecue chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Tinfoil Swans. Today, I'm chatting with Anthony Porosky. As a young artist trying to figure out like what route you're going to take, if you're going to lean into the discomfort, if you're going to go with the comfort, and there's not necessarily a wrong answer, but you're telling yourself, am I selling out if I'm doing such and such? I'd love to hear about like some uh, moments along the way where like those were kind of switches that flipped like, yes, I did the hard thing. Yes, I did the easy thing. Can you think of any of those sort of moments like as you're going, you're auditioning or whatever it is? Oh, Yeah. I mean, like with acting, for example. So I've I've been to more auditions than I've done episodes of Queer Eye. Yeah. And it always felt like I was fighting against something that I kind of, I didn't know if I was good. I still don't. It's hard for me to be, to confidently say like, oh, you know what I'm really good at? But I, I, I felt that there was kind of a block, but I knew that I wanted to head into, into that direction. And what Carol taught me is that apparently the youngest kid usually in families of like multiple siblings is often the one that wants to be seen. So there is like a correlation, a relationship between people who pursue a career in entertainment and being like the youngest because they feel like they weren't seen when they were growing up. So they want to be seen by the world. It's not not narcissistic, <laughs> but that really hit me when she said that. And so there was this this kind of stubbornness because for me, it was the only path was like, I want to be on Boardwalk Empire and I want to be on like an HBO show. And then I had these people in my life and like close friends who would come over for dinner and I would make something to eat and they would be like, I'll just like stand in the kitchen and you'll be making something and you'll be talking about it. And like, before I know it, we have a lesson and I like learned a thing. And then when we're sitting down, you're like taking apart the dish and critiquing it and saying how like the pasta could have been cooked a minute less or like you put too much pasta water and you should have let it reduce a little more, but you were worried that the noodles were going to get gummy or whatever it was. And so I had these people that just started kind of like pushing me in the direction of food, but I was so stubborn because I thought I had this like very specific concrete plan of what it was that I wanted to do. Then it was kind of unavoidable when, you know, when Queer Eye came about and when a friend of mine, Jameson, who was a manager at the time, kind of told me that it was being rebooted. What is your mindset as you're coming into film this demo that 
you were doing with me, which was the first time you were doing like a food demo on camera. What is that feeling like? Are you nervous? Is that a, a sort of moment of like, yes, somebody finally sees both parts of me? What What are the feelings on the way in? I remember exactly the layout of the table and where I was standing and where the light was hitting in from the outside. And I was so terrified. Mm -hmm. I had no clue what I was doing and I felt incredibly naked. At that point, I'd taken like all these acting workshops. I'd graduated from the Neighborhood Playhouse in New York. I'd been in New York for a moment and I'd gone to a lot of auditions and I always had the comfort of in some ways showing a very vulnerable side of me with acting, but at the same time being able to hide certain parts as well, right? Through a name and through a character and a, a demeanor or whatever it was. And for this, it was literally just like, hey, this is just me cutting up a bunch of crudite and trying to do a Martha spread and doing, it was like a Boursin lobster saffron situation that was like a riff off something that I discovered at Dean and DeLuca yes. way back when, when I was a kid with my parents. And I thought it was like the chicest little dip I'd ever seen in my life. I couldn't believe that there were chunks of lobster and something that could be consumed as a dip. And and I, I remember I was just so nervous because I was like, oh, I have nowhere to hide. I'm here to like show people how to make this thing that I really love that I've been like making for my family and, and for friends every once in a while, yeah. usually without the lobster because I couldn't afford it. And I think I used lobster in that one. Did I? I think we had some cold poached lobster and yeah. John yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. 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 It. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yes. 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 And I think we may have had that on the side, but I remember you had, you had come in and I was thinking this man is too pretty to have anything interesting to say. And you open your mouth and and you knew exactly what you were talking about. And you had me at the word proper because I, I knew that you had the conviction. You clearly knew what you were talking about, but I don't know if you knew that. I'm still not sure that I that I know, but that's what <laughs> but that's kind of what keeps me going, you know? And then a few years after this, you're on Queer Eye. And as your your own name, the word queer is in the title of the show. There is nowhere to hide. Because it's all just right on there. So how's that all feeling? How did you psych yourself up for this, for this grand reveal of self? Again, paralyzing fear. <laughs> I mean, that was, those were the two things that I think scared me the most about the show. Because on one end, it was like, oh, finally, I know what it's like to book something. But at the same time, it was like, Again, yeah, like showing a personal part of our lives. I was working in, you know, a lot of different restaurants at the time and and so many of them people didn't even know that I had a partner who was male at the time and some of them just assumed that I was straight. I still have this debate with myself. I don't think it was pure shame. I don't think anything is ever black and white and that simple. I wanted people to like keep guessing and to like not really fully have me figured out and then as soon as I was in a situation where I could like disarm someone by telling them like, oh, like I have, you know, my boyfriend, you know, at home loves it when I do this. And then that was a way to kind of like have them warm up to me with like to make somebody more comfortable to show them that like I wasn't a threat. I liked having that control. And with Queer Eye, there was just no hiding behind any of it. And it was also food, which was something that was so personal. And again, I know I did that that demo with you as I was like testing things out and trying different things. But like that wasn't that wasn't my music video that played in my head. That wasn't the thing that I was fantasizing about every single day that I wanted to be in. Pet Shop Boys being boring or, you know, any of those that kind of like, you know, would, you know, keep me up at night because my whole life is music videos. I play everything as like a movie in my brain. That wasn't part of the plan. And that's what I was fighting against because it was one of the first times where I actually, I, I really did feel like, oh, I got the job that I needed and not the job that I wanted. It's kind of incredible sometimes how 
those things come to pass and other people, other things make those decisions for you. Are, are you able now to look at your performances you know, on screen or on stage and feel like, yes, I feel good about that. I feel like I am representing my full self on there. Or you just constant state of self-critique and fear. The self-critiquing has gotten a lot better because I watch myself a lot less. Okay. <laughs> At the beginning, it was like, oh, what am I doing? Like, why is my head sticking out so much? Why isn't my head above my shoulders? I do this. I would just constantly like lean forward. Like I'm trying to listen to someone who's whispering or saying the word like a lot. There were all kinds of memes about me saying the word like, and then you just plop this into the pan and I would like this. So I would say like this, the way some people say like a lot. And then plop apparently is a word that I'm very comfortable with because I love just plopping things because it's very self-descriptive. It's like simple. There's no confusion there. I wouldn't look at anything and be like, oh yeah, like I, I really crushed it there. But at the same time, I'm definitely a lot more gentle with myself. One thing that, that I think I've gotten comfortable with and as I'm kind of like learning like what my secret sauce is whenever I do get anxiety, even in Queer Eye all these seasons in, I just tell myself like, okay, and like, you didn't sleep well, you're tired, you're either over-caffeinated or under-caffeinated or you're missing Kev or your dog or whoever it is or you had a weird therapy session and I always just try to tell myself like, okay, like just be a human being just for the next few hours and just focus on the person that you're with and go in as you would like meeting somebody at a party. I'm very curious. I ask a lot of questions. I always want to get to know people and I just try to focus on that and then the rest of it just kind of hopefully ends up going the way. I'm definitely more gentle with myself than I used to be. And now it's sort of like if I see myself wearing something silly and I'm like, I used to be mortified and be like, why did I wear a suit jacket with nothing under to this award ceremony with this crazy necklace? And now I'm just like, ah, it was a moment in time. I tried it out. It didn't work out. All right, life goes on. I'm not here to save lives. I don't take myself as seriously, which has been really nice. But that took a lot of, a lot of practice and desensitization of seeing my face in a whole bunch of different places and saying things and 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 all of that. Humans weren't built for that. No, none of it's normal. <laughs> none of it. Absolutely none of it. But what's scarier, being out there on a show like Queer Eye or writing a cookbook where it's all in print, written down for the ages? Queer Eye is scarier because, yes, there are editors, but there's no script. So it's really just me and my thoughts in the moment. It's the spontaneity that is a little more terrifying for me. Writing a cookbook is terrifying in many other ways because I'm always battling trying to relay my POV and trying to be as authentic as possible, but then questioning what if my authenticity is seen as like basic or just wrong or dumb or something that doesn't necessarily make sense. And actually, as I'm thinking about it, I get that on Queer Eyes well, where like all, you know, I made a gumbo once in an episode and, and for a restaurant and the daughter really wanted to have corn, the gumbo. And, you know, even though I very specifically said like, oh, like we're putting corn in this gumbo because your daughter wanted it that way. And he was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And the amount of flack that I got, again, because I was reading the stupid comments and people posting like, we need to teach this boy how to make a proper gumbo. Corn doesn't belong in there. I think the fear is always like, it's it's the vulnerability part. It's kind of like if I put myself out there, I'm not saying that I want praise, but I, I don't like getting clobbered. You're human. It's painful when you're honest and you're open and you're vulnerable and, and that doesn't work for somebody. So let's say you're not human. Let's say you're a Muppet. Which one are you? Oh, well, I love animal. 
for so many reasons. So what is it about Animal that appeals to you? Animal is just unabashedly chaotic and all over the place. But then I love, I like Fozzie Bear too. Fozzie Bear has like a nice comforting sweetness. Maybe it's just a whole teddy bear aspect. So when we're talking again, when you're my age, 50, where are you hoping you're going to be? What is the thing you want? I want to have a place in the country. Yes. With a big fence. So my dog can run around freely and I don't have to worry about her nose taking her to anywhere that she doesn't need to be because she is very much controlled by her nose, which was a strong sense of smell. And I want to have a place in the city. I want to have kids and have like all the books that I like loved growing up, like on their walls. And I want to teach them how to play the guitar because I didn't learn how to play the guitar when I was a kid. And I want to play Cat Stevens' father and son. Yes. And by then, Kev and I are going to have wedding bands, which is kind of crazy to think about. You're getting married soon. Yeah. I want to have the kind of setup where I just have like all, like now I, I, I love my routines and my rituals and I just want to have like the fresh juice from like a specific place and I want to have like either my own chickens or have like farm eggs delivered or just have like a system in place of all the things that kind of bring me joy. I can't think about like work goals for me, the long term are kind of hard, but I think more of like my my personal life and I, I want to have a big U-shaped sectional that's very deep that I could sit on and just like watch TV. Curling up with a dog and a person is beautiful. <laughs> and as somebody who cares about you very, very much, it, it really makes me happy to see you and hear you content and to have all this love in your life. It, it just, now I'm getting emotional <laughs> about this, but you matter to me. And I'm so grateful that you were on this. And I have one last question. What is a tinfoil swan moment to you? Also, I love you to death. And you always check in on whenever there's something going on or something that's like out there. I'm extremely grateful for, for your friendship. Tinfoil swan for me. I'm, okay, so I, the most recent tinfoil situation is kind of a symbol for this, especially since being a dog owner. I'm not crazy about fat caps on steaks. My dad loves them. It's not for me. I like good marbleized beef or I like try to go a little like leaner. I love a good like a strip or a hanger. And so when there's a fat cap, I'm like, I'm not going to throw it out. So I keep it for my dog. And she also loves carrots. I will ask for the leftover of the steak to be wrapped up like basically to go so that I can give it to my dog. And when I come home, because she's been alone for a whole two hours, which is like, that's an international oh, incident no. for her because she has a busy, busier social <laughs> calendar than me. Not even kidding. Walking you through it would be a whole episode. But when I come home and it's like I've been gone for a couple hours and she knows that I'm coming there and I have like some pieces of steak, I'll cut it, I'll chop it up finely. I'll put it in a container so I can mix it in with her food the next day. But I give her a little bit then. And it's like, I love bringing back to-goes or like little tinfoil swans for my dog. So it makes me think of my pup. Sometimes some bread as well. If there's no garlic or onion in there, and if it's like a nice sourdough or think pumpernickel is fine for her, but she's she's a big fan of a Parker House roll. Loves a buttery roll. I think half the audience wants to be your dog now. <laughs> <laughs> Live in the dream, my friend. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Anthony Porosky. Be sure to follow Tinfoil Swans on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we would love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we would really appreciate it. You can also find us online at foodandwine.com slash tinfoilswans. 
Thank you so much to this incredible production team. Lottie LeMarie, Dominique Arciero, Michael Classic, Amelia Schwartz, Ashley Day, Sean Flynn, and Hunter Lewis. Make sure to come back on July 11th for my conversation with Shota Nakajima. Take care of yourself until then. <laughs>